So, dear brethren and sisters, the ability to see is one of the greatest gifts we possess. The human eye is truly a wonderful piece of God's design, perfectly formed for its purpose. Anyone who has studied, even superficially, the intricacy and beauty of its structure will appreciate some of the greatness of God's design work. For any one of us, the loss or impairment of this most fundamental of the senses would probably have the most far-reaching consequences on our day-to-day lives. Almost everything we do uses our vision to control and monitor our actions. Because we rely on sight so much in our daily lives, we use the evidence of our eyes as one of the first tests of truth. Seeing is believing, as the saying goes. And although not universally true, we do tend to believe things that we have seen. We tend to trust our eyes. We almost never doubt that what we are seeing is true, even if we may interpret the information incorrectly, as when, for example, we see optical illusion. Yet one of the interesting things about our eyes is how much they cannot see. Even from a physical point of view, the human eye, remarkable though it is, is only sensitive to a very limited range of frequency or colours. Even for someone with perfect colour vision, the visible band of the electromagnetic spectrum is actually a very small part of a range of waves that stretches from radio waves at the low frequency end through infrared, the visible band which our eyes can see, and ultraviolet through to X-rays and gamma rays at the higher frequencies. Millions of pounds and thousands of man years have been spent developing instruments that can see all these different frequencies or colours because our own eyes are unable to detect them. There are other things, of course, that we cannot see. An example of which was mentioned in the book of the first letter to Peter, chapter 1, verse 8, speaking of Jesus, whom not having seen, he loved. There are other things we cannot see because of our own physical limitations, the most important of which is mentioned in John's first letter. Perhaps we could look briefly again at the fourth chapter of 1 John. Verse 12, no man hath seen God at any time. Now we know this is a limitation placed on all human beings because of our finite nature and our inability to cope with the prospect of God's greatness and power in our current state. As the angel of God stated to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, and he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And following on from these few ideas, I'd like to spend a few minutes this morning, before we take the envelopes, thinking about sight and the way it is used in Scripture, both in examples to us and also when used in allegory. A rather nice illustration of the importance of visual witness is given for us in the record in Isaiah of the attack of Sennacherib against Hezekiah. I'm sure we're all familiar with the incident. One of the best examples of the faith of Hezekiah 
demonstrated at the time of crisis for Israel. And this was in Isaiah chapter 36, our chapter for a few days ago. We're looking through this chapter. It gives us some of the background to the incident. Isaiah 36, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defence cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem unto King Hezekiah with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's Field. Later, as we know, Rabshakeh had to withdraw from Jerusalem because of the report that the king of Ethiopia had marched to attack Sennacherib. But to assure Hezekiah that his reprieve was only temporary, Rabshakeh wrote him a letter, this in Isaiah 37, from verse 9. And he heard say concerning Tirhaka, king of Ethiopia, he is come forth to make war with thee. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall ye speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Let not thy God, in whom thou trustest, deceive thee, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Glancing down to the next few verses, we see the blasphemous content of this message. And in verse 14, we we see Hezekiah's response. Isaiah 37, verse 14, And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, And Hezekiah went up unto the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now, obviously, it was not necessary for Hezekiah to spread the letter out for God to read. God knew what was in the letter before it had been written. But it was Hezekiah's way of demonstrating the sin and arrogance of Rabshakeh. The fact that he had a letter in front of him was incontrovertible, visual proof of the pride of this man. Hezekiah hadn't misheard him or received a garbled second-hand account of this man's words. He had them written down to see in front of him. Perhaps we can continue with a negative example, which we would have read uh, today, this morning, in uh, Judges chapter 19. As you glance through this chapter, I'm sure you're all familiar with the unpleasant incident which suitably finishes the very mixed record of Israel's history under the judges. We're not going to dwell for too long on this chapter or go into too many of the details. But perhaps we could just look very briefly at a comment from the other Israelites recorded at the end of the chapter. When the tribes received the parts of the dismembered concubine, they made this appalled comment Judges 19, verse 30, And it was so that all that saw it said, There was no such deed done nor seen from the day that the children of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt unto this day. Consider of it, take advice, and speak your minds. Their shock at the actions of the Benjamites of Gibeah was heightened by the fact that they had all seen evidence of gross wrongdoing in the heart of Israel, as represented by the body parts sent throughout the nation, they could not ignore the evidence of their own eyes that a grievous wrong had been committed. And so there was no delay in mustering the army to go and rectify the situation as far as they were able. 
As we read at the start of the next chapter, Judges 20, verse 1, Then all the children of Israel went out, and the congregation was gathered together as one man, from Dan even to Beersheba, with the land of Gilead unto the Lord in Mizpah. And the chief of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 footmen that drew sword. In a similar way, but obviously in a much more positive context, God makes repeated appeals to the eyewitness records of the miracles performed at various times in their history. One example, the last words of Joshua, reminded the people of what they had witnessed during the Exodus. Joshua 24 from verse 6. And I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and ye came unto the sea, And the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried out unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. And it was the loss of these very eyewitnesses which was one of the key factors behind Israel's apostasy. In fact, various safeguards were implemented to try to maintain the memory of the people, to maintain their faith in the miraculous power of God. Just one of God's warnings to Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 4, Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life, thy life sorry, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. The eyewitnesses of God's power were critical in maintaining the faith of the nation. As witnessed by the events shortly after Joshua's death, Judges 2, verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. But in contrast, after the death of these men, And also all all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Baalim. The implication here is surely that because the people had not seen the power of God, they found it hard to believe in. They did not know God in the sense of appreciating his true greatness, as witnessed by the miracles of the Exodus. And the results of this lack of appreciation are evident throughout the book of Judges, which we are reading. Now this is a fundamental problem with human beings. We're so used to trusting our own senses, perhaps particularly our sense of sight, that we find it very difficult to believe things that are just reported to us by others. This problem is certainly not restricted to Old Testament times. It also afflicted the first disciples. Remember the very famous words of Thomas when the other disciples told him that they had seen the risen Jesus. John 20, verse 25, The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
But remember also Jesus' words to Thomas when they finally met. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. This blessing was one that Peter was convinced would be relevant to the readers of his letter. Part of which we have read together um, earlier this week. Look at the chapter uh, from a few days ago, 1 Peter chapter 1, which we read earlier today. Um, Verse 7, the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Both of these quotations introduce us to the instrument which allows us to see Jesus, even though in a physical sense this is impossible to us. That instrument is faith. And like the physical devices that I mentioned at the start, it requires time, effort and care to develop. But the results can be remarkable. Look at this passage from the letter to the Hebrews, speaking of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, from verse 8. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he, by the, ta- by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Now, it is only a very few people who can truthfully claim to have seen Christ glorified now. Even most of those alive in the first century, many of them witnesses even to the resurrection, had not seen Christ in his glory. Yet this man, the writer to the Hebrews, was writing as if all of his readers had in fact witnessed this remarkable thing. Their eye of faith was fully developed, and we need to cultivate ours in the same way, so that we have the same confidence as if we had literally witnessed Jesus crowned with glory and honour. But we are not expected to have a blind faith without reason. If this were so, then it would be equally valid to believe that Jesus has not been given dominion over all things, that he was not crucified and raised from the dead, and as some around us assert, that he did not even exist as a historical figure. Rather, our faith has a foundation. And again, this foundation is pointed out for us in one of Peter's letters, the second of Peter, chapter 1. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter refers a number of times in his two letters to the fact that to the fact of his credentials as an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ. First Peter chapter five The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. 
So in this quote, we're coming full circle, aren't we? Our faith, by which we see the miracles of God's purpose, is based on the eyewitness accounts of those who actually experienced them. And the strength of our faith is related to our confidence in the veracity of these accounts. Yet there is another source of strength for our faith. Again, mentioned by Peter, second of Peter chapter 1, we, also, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do, ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Now I believe these two aspects have combined in our own day in a way unprecedented since the destruction of Jerusalem. The older ones among us have seen God's hand at work in the remarkable fulfilment of prophecy, for example, in the history of Israel. Such signs are well nigh as powerful and indisputable as the signs of the Exodus or those of Jesus' ministry. They are inexplicable without accepting that they are the exact outworking of God's plan and are quite impossible to explain from simply a human point of view. Experiencing the fulfilment of such prophecies is surely an incredible support to our faith. This has to be transmitted through to the younger generations so that they too can have the same confidence in God's power, just as Israel in the past should have transmitted their experiences during the Exodus to their children to give them a similar foundation to their faith. We need to constantly refresh our confidence in the things which others have witnessed throughout the ages. Not just of the lifetime of our parents, but to remember that all of the biblical accounts are based on eyewitness accounts of God's working. The things which gave them the absolute confidence that their faith had a secure foundation. Now this confidence, this eye of faith, doesn't just look back at the past, but also to the future. To see the end of God's purpose in the kingdom. And this will fundamentally affect all of our life's attitudes. Again, this is pointed out by Peter. Look at his words at the end of the list of characteristics necessary for a disciple. All of these based on robust faith. The second of Peter chapter 1 again. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old old sins. Perhaps we can illustrate the way our sight, or perception of things around us, affects our actions. An atheist walks through the woods and sees a series of remarkable accidents which have combined to produce an apparently beautiful and harmonious environment. The disciple walks through the same woods and sees the evidence of an all-wise and all-powerful creator who has carefully designed and is actively maintaining all that we see around us. An atheist becomes ill and sees this as the encroachment of a microscopic predator onto his immune system. A disciple becomes ill and sees this as part of the training God sends to make us better fitted to his purpose. 
both of these people will behave quite differently because of what they believe they have seen. So to bring this closer to home, what do we see when we look around our ecclesias today? The reason I ask this is because I'd like to spend the last few minutes this morning thinking about the verse from the first letter of John, which we read earlier today. Let's now put it back into its context. First of John chapter 4 from verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. At first sight, this would appear to be something of a non sequitur. The little phrase, no man hath seen God at any time, seems to be inserted into the text without any relation to what surrounds it. However, if we assume, as we should, that John knew what he was doing when he wrote down this letter, we can draw some quite remarkable conclusions. Perhaps I'll read those verses from the NIV, which place this sentence within the main flow of the argument. The same verses, first of John, chapter 4, from 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. I think then what John is saying here is that although no one has seen God, we can see him in our brethren and sisters if we have the correct attitude of love towards each other. The thing that will help us cultivate this attitude is an unbreakable faith in the love of God, as demonstrated in the sacrifice of his Son. The clearer our vision of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection, the stronger our eye of faith, the more likely we are to fulfil Jesus' command to love each other, and the more closely we will resemble our Heavenly Father. In the words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. The letters of the New Testament repeatedly make this link between a confidence in the truth of the resurrection and of correctly fulfilling Christ's commands in practice. We read one earlier from Peter. Let's look at a couple from John's writings, the verses immediately preceding the one we just quoted. Verse 9 of the first of John, chapter 4. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And these words explicitly link this attitude with a confidence in the sacrifice of Christ. From chapter 3, verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So what do we see when we look around us? Do we see a group of people, all with their individual foibles and difficulties? Or do we see God, as John said we should, 
When we look upwards, do we see another overcast sky? Or do we see Jesus seated in glory at the right hand of his Father, as the writer to the Hebrews did? Our faith in the one will directly affect our perception of the other. Now then, we come to focus on the one who exactly represented his father. As he said to Philip shortly before his crucifixion, John chapter 14, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. And how sayest thou then, show us the father? As we remember his victory now, Let us remember also that we can share in his victory. From our next chapter from the first of John, chapter five. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God?